not less of an announcement, but more of a thing to mention. And I'm really curious to watch your reaction. Today is the last message in our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. Did you all feel that? There was this thing that just happened. It was like, like that. And for some of you, that meant, oh, it's finally over. It's, oh my goodness. And for some of you, the same shrug was like, oh man, there's, it's done? And for those of you who are still like, man, I want more of this, I'll give you two recommendations. And I'm going to recommend you take notes today, by the way, because there's a lot to talk about. But if you're writing stuff down, there's two books I'd recommend. We've talked about one already. It's called uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Pete Scazzaro. He's a pastor in New York. And then the other book I'd recommend is called Changes That Heal by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend, uh, Christian uh, psychiatrists who have really done a lot to help um, in this regard. Honestly, one of the best books, short of the Bible, I've ever read, Changes That Heal. So, um, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Changes That Heal. Today, we cruise to the finish line, or maybe I'd like to think about it this way, the starting line of living emotionally healthy spirituality. We've talked about it a lot, but it really doesn't matter if we talk about it if we don't live it. Amen? So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, as we approach uh, your word this morning, the word that you divinely inspired human writers to pen, uh, we pray that you would also speak divine inspiration into our own hearts, that your word would powerfully rest on our souls, and that not only would we hear the word, but as James says, we'd be doers of the word, and you'd change our lives for the better as a result. Bring freedom, uh, bring release. I pray, Lord, that you would... Um, just set us up for uh, just a great amount of uh, health in our lives today as we receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The three most terrifying people I've ever met all had one thing in common. And these are people that I would, genuinely scary people, I, I would protect my family from, I would never invite them into my house terrifying people, the three most terrifying people I've ever met had this thing in common. They were all controlled by bitterness. In fact, on the other hand, the most peace-filled people I've ever met, people whose strength was like in their settledness, every room that they walked into, they brought a sense of calm. Almost every single peace-filled person, peace-bringing person that I've met, like that, they had another thing in common, that they had experienced evil or harm or misfortune from other people, and, and they chose to walk in forgiveness. And as a result, they weren't chained to the past, the things that had happened to them, and so what is happening in the present couldn't really rattle them because they learned a secret that brought them settledness. And that was their strength, is what they had chosen to live in forgiveness. I want to ask you, have you ever seen great forgiveness in action? Maybe you've read an amazing story of somebody forgiving somebody else. See, forgiveness is one of the greatest things to see in other people, right? <laughs> but it's one of the most difficult choices to ever make on a personal level. Can I get an amen? The great British author C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of books that I love, but one of the books that he wrote is called The Weight of Glory. And in that book, there's an essay he has called On Forgiveness. And I want to share a quote with you from that essay this morning. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian 
means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. In other words, forgiveness is the de- one of the defining actions of a Christian. To forgive. The, the opposite of this is to hang on to bitterness. Okay? I would posit to you this morning that you are rarely more like God than when you forgive somebody. So maybe you've seen forgiveness in action, maybe you've experienced it on a personal level, and although it's incredibly difficult, and might I even say miraculous, forgiveness is truly the doorway to freedom and health. It's, it's the invitation to experience release from this thing that has been keeping you stuck in the past and reacting your whole life to something that happened way back then. Because see, what happens is, it's hard enough to get to the point of forgiveness. To, to, to grapple with the fact of what happened and then the impact of how it personally affected you. And the invitation of Jesus this morning is to get to the point of not just forgiving, but living in the freedom of no longer being chained to what you were stuck by in the past. Now, if you've ever forgiven somebody, you as well as I know that it's one thing to get to this point, but man, a lot of times we get drawn right back to this point. Well, we start to live in forgiveness, and then that, that day of the year comes up again. You, you chose forgiveness, and all of a sudden you see their face again. You, you chose to be obedient to the command of Jesus to forgive, and then all of a sudden there's this scenario that brings up all of those feelings all over again. And so you get back to this point. But what I want to offer to you today is more than just a command of Jesus to forgive. I want to offer to you today from the Word of God a lifestyle of freedom and health. Because even if you're at this point and you get drawn, the, the, the point of forgiveness is that you're no longer stuck reacting your whole life to something that happened back there. And, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning is the health and the freedom of forgiveness. Because the truth of the matter is unforgiveness is unhealthy. Just, just on a purely biological, mental, psychological, physiological level, unforgiveness is unhealthy. It's unfor- unhealthy for others, but it's unhealthy for you. In fact, there's, there's not much more destructive than bitterness. I heard a preacher say this one time. He said, bitterness is like murder in diapers. Right? It's just undeveloped murder. It's dangerous to the world around you, but even more subtle, it's dangerous to your own health. Secular scientists and doctors even are in agreement about this. The health benefits of letting go of a grudge and choosing to forgive. And I was reading, I was looking for some peer-reviewed journals, okay? Not just like a BuzzFeed article, but stuff where there's scientific data and people have, have you know, submitted it to the process of the scientific community um, peer-reviewed article from Mayo Clinic, they listed these health benefits of forgiving. Healthier relationships, improved mental health, 
less anxiety, less stress, less hostility, fewer symptoms of depression, lower blood pressure, a stronger immune system, improved heart health, and obviously improved self-esteem. On the flip side, in some of, the, some of these other scientific journals, the health risks involved in holding a grudge or living with unforgiveness should, I mean, it kind of scared me just reading some of these. Anxiety, aggressive behavior, depression, emotional dysregulation and some other mood disorders, cognitive decline, in other words, like gradually losing control of your mental functions, self-harm, suicidal thoughts, chronic stress on your cardiovascular health, poor digestion, impaired reproduction, worse sleep, and even a weakened immune system. Translation, unforgiveness is unhealthy. Now, it's obviously easier to talk about than put into practice because forgiveness is not just a doorway to get to, right? It's, it's a continual way of life to begin living out. And, and that's where the health slowly improves. If you've ever gone on a diet or started working out, you realize that one choice does not make health, right? I show up January 1st into the gym, and then the next day I've got six-pack abs and huge biceps, right? That's how it works. Right? Forgiveness is similar. Like, health in this regard is slowly earned over time, slowly received over time. So I want to give you the outcome of today's message. I would consider the outcome of today's message successful if we each allowed God to put one person and or offense to forgive on our hearts and then we decided today to, to, to surrender it to God's healing process of forgiveness so that we can move forward in freedom. Like I've become convinced by God's word and by God's faithfulness that if you choose to if you choose to walk in forgiveness what you're going to experience is a new way of life called freedom opening up to you everywhere you go. And all of a sudden you feel fully present in this moment. And when something negative happens, now all of a sudden I'm responding to it out of the love of Jesus, not reacting to it out of the pain of my past. And there's freedom and there's wholeness and life that comes out of me as I choose to live in forgiveness. Again, it's a one-time decision, but then it's a continual process of living. So that's what I want to get to today. So why don't we walk towards that doorway together? Um, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to join me in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 15. If you're able to, would you join me in standing? And we're going to read this out loud together. God's Word, preached through the lips of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, or as my grandpa calls it, the lesson on the hill, however you want to say it. Jesus says this, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Pray like this, our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. 
And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Good job. You guys can have a seat. Whew. That's a heavy statement right there at the end. Now, I know you all read it. I think the bigger question is, how easy is that to actually believe? See, when we read this prayer, I think what happens is we wind up making a mistake about God's forgiveness of our sins and the forgiveness that we're to offer other people for their sins. Right? And This is what I think we do. I think we often mistake the concept of forgiveness with the concept and the idea of excusing. Okay? That's what I mean. When, when something genuinely has been done wrong, an offense, a sin, there's no excuse for that. It was wrong, it happened, it had terrible consequences. You can't just look past that. This is where forgiveness is called upon. But here's where the trouble is. Excusing is totally the opposite. And this is, we make a subtle shift, and I don't think we should. If you have a perfect excuse for why something happened, you wouldn't need forgiveness, right? Nothing wrong was committed. It was just an unfortunate scenario. It was a misunderstanding, something outside of your control. You can get over that. You can understand that. You can excuse it. Here's the issue. A lot of times what we do is when we ask God for forgiveness, what we're really doing is hoping that God just accepts our excuses. Or maybe when we apologize to someone, what we're really hoping is they'll just kind of look past the offense and they'll just excuse it. But why do we do this? Because in order to ask for forgiveness, we have to admit that we committed a wrong. There's humility involved in that. right? There's vulnerability involved in that. And not only do we have to admit that we did something wrong and we sinned against somebody or against God, but to be forgiven, we actually have to rely on their mercy. This is a very vulnerable place to be in because it's a place where there's no excuse, right? You starting to see the difference? And so when it comes to forgiving other people, this is where it gets personal, a lot of times people just think forgiving means excusing or just letting it slide. So for example, if somebody asks you to forgive them for telling a lie or for taking something that wasn't theirs, um, we often think that they're just asking us to pretend that the lying or stealing never happened, just to excuse it, to let it slide. But if there wasn't really much to forgive in the first place, then, then what's going on here? Was something wrong, or was something just a misunderstanding? And here's why I'm making a big deal of this, because a lot of times we want God to treat us one way, and then we want to treat other people a different way. When we want God to forgive us, we just hope that he accepts our excuses really easily. But when other people ask us to forgive them, that's a lot harder to accept. In fact, turn with me a few pages later to Matthew chapter 18. Okay, I want to read you a parable that Jesus told when somebody asks him how much forgiveness is needed, how much 
space in his heart he needs to hold for forgiveness for somebody else. Okay? Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter. Matthew 18, 21. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often should I forgive somebody who sins against me seven times? Now, just imagine this for a moment. Somebody wrongs you in a way that genuinely hurts. You're like, ow! What'd you do that for, man? He's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? It takes a lot to forgive somebody who intended to wrong you and is apologizing and asking for forgiveness, and you're like, but it still hurts. But I'm going to choose to forget, and you're like, so it took a whole process, and you're like, okay. And then they do it again. And you're like, ouch! What are you doing? You're like, oh, I just got, I got so mixed up. I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And then they do it again. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. And again. And again. That's seven. Okay, can you imagine how raw your heart is at this point? Like, I, why am I hanging around this person anymore? So Peter's like, probably putting a little extra holy spin on this seven times and jesus says no not seven times <sighs> but 70 times seven what jesus explains the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him in the process one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars he couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his kids and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before the master and begged him, please be patient with me, I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him only a few thousand dollars, and that is comparatively in that day's money compared to today. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little bit more time. Please be patient with me. I'll pay it. But the creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, put into prison until the debt could be paid in full. And when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. And they went to the king and they told him everything that had happened. And the king called in the man that he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. This is what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Jesus says we must forgive people. Not just in practice, but from our hearts. That's clear. But what I want to, die, what I want to do is I want to dive under the surface of that a little bit, if you'll indulge me for a moment. If Jesus says that we must forgive from our hearts, then it must mean we have to admit something genuinely wrong happened that cannot be made right so easily. Right? There's genuine guilt that cannot be overlooked. Jesus is not just asking us to excuse the wrong that happened to me or to each of us. Because anyone can do that, right? Think about it. In order to be somebody who looks past the excusable, who excuses things that are just understandable, does not mean anything supernatural, doesn't mean anything Christian. It does not speak to the presence of a forgiving God living in your life. No, it just means you have a basic sense of fairness. Anyone can do that, right? If there's an excuse, you can excuse it. 
But to be a Christian, as C.S. Lewis says, means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God's forgiven the inexcusable in us. Let me say that again. Christians can excuse the inexcusable in others because God's forgiven the inexcusable in us. So here's what we do. We start the day praying what Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. So as a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom, what am I doing? At the beginning of the day, I've determined to live redemptively. And so before I'm ever sinned against, I'm prepared to forgive. I'm committed to living the life of a forgiving person. Now, it doesn't mean that abuse is okay. It doesn't mean lying or stealing or any of the ways that I've experienced harm at the hands of somebody else. It doesn't mean any of that stuff is fine. It doesn't. It just means I'm not going to be controlled by the sins of another person. I'm not going to let the spirit of bitterness dictate my thoughts and my feelings. I'm actually going to be a contributor to society. Because what happens is when I'm filled with bitterness, I'm chained to the past. If I hold on to the past, then I can't be fully present today and bring redemptive solutions. It's one of the things that that Satan uses to keep Christians from being a creative, positive influence in our culture, in society. It's, It's keeping us married to yesterday. See, whenever the enemy tempts you to hold a grudge, you need to get this, listen to this. It's not because he hates the other person and wants to ruin their life. It's because he hates you. Someone once said that uh, clinging to bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's like grabbing hold of a sharp knife and hoping the other person bleeds. You need to hear this. When you are being tempted to refuse forgiveness, you're the target. Not them. Now, I want to clarify something for a moment. There's a lot of things that forgiveness is, and we're going to talk about them but there's, lest there be any confusion, there also are things that forgiveness is not. Okay, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you four things that forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness does not mean trusting. Trust has to be earned. Forgiveness doesn't. Both are good. They're not the same thing. All right, sometimes physical safety or personal health, or are real issues to consider. And so even though you're trusting the other person, trusting the wrong to the justice of God, you're still maintaining personal responsibility for the people and the things that God's entrusted to your care. So even though you've chosen to forgive, it's not a bad thing to maintain a a healthy boundary until trustworthiness has yet to be proven. You want their lifestyle to be believable, before you can trust them again, right? So forgiveness is not trusting. Second thing, forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetfulness. Because memory is a function of the brain. Forgiveness is a function of the spirit or the soul, like the who you are on the inside. It's where I release the burden of of making things right, I release that burden to God because only He can truly right all wrongs. I think it's probably why Jesus 
or at least a factor in why Jesus was saying, forgive 70 times 7? Because your memory is going to continually bring it back up. And Jesus is saying, and then therefore, let's continually choose to let it go. To release it. Because we keep remembering it. Just because you can't forget does not mean you can't forgive. So forgiveness is not trusting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness does not mean excusing, which I already mentioned. And fourth, forgiveness does not mean reconciling. Again, a very good aim. But forgiveness is only a decision that I can make. Reconciliation is a two-way street, right? Both parties have to be willing to work on some kind of solution. And the sad reality of the fallen world that we live in That's not always an option, right? Repairing the relationship may not actually be possible, even though you've chosen to forgive. Now, it's still appropriate to allow space for reconciliation, absolutely, if possible. If the possibility of rebuilding trust truly exists, give space for it to slowly be rebuilt in small increments over time. But you don't have to control how the other person responds or receives your forgiveness. And so reconciliation may not always be possible. Sometimes you have to find that place where even though you attempted to work towards reconciliation, as Jesus said, as much depends on you, live at peace with all men. And, And you've done everything that depends on you, and the offer was refused, but you still chose to offer forgiveness. And through the power of the Spirit, you're choosing to give forgiveness despite the brokenness of that relationship now. Okay? You need to get this. Choosing to forgive someone is not the same thing as trusting them, as forgetting, as excusing, or even that the relationship might be restored. It's not the same thing. So, if that's what forgiveness is not, what is forgiveness and how do I walk in that? Let's talk about that. First, there's a lot of layers to the answer to that question. How do I forgive? What is forgiveness? The first layer I want to point you to is just this, that forgiveness is completely based on believing the gospel. Forgiveness is based on the gospel. Remember what God did in sending his son Jesus to die in your place, to take the punishment of your sins so that you could be forgiven? It's time to rest your faith in that once more. Matter of fact, I'm going to make a bold statement. How quick you are to forgive somebody reveals what you actually believe about the gospel. Think about it. When I don't forgive, when I, when I refuse forgiveness from somebody, I'm choosing to live like I cannot trust how free God's forgiveness was to me, how capable God was to deal with all of the wrong and offense that I've committed And therefore, I don't trust him to do the same with all the wrong and offense that was committed by this other person. Like, good, thanks for dying on the cross for me, Jesus, but you still got some more to do. In fact, I'll pick up the slack for you because this person needs a little bit more. And if Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient for everybody's sins, it wasn't sufficient for yours. So for as long as I live this way, I'm going to be enslaved to the cage of bitterness and I'm going to be the one feeling the pain that I'm hoping is inflicted on the other person. The invitation of Jesus 
is to release the injustice that you've received. Nothing saying it was okay, but release the injustice of what you've received to the perfect justice of God. And to the extent that you keep holding on to the bitterness and unforgiveness, you're showing how little you actually trust God can deal with it. Let me share a secret with you. They're not getting off scot-free. Because one of two things is going to happen. Either, and this is the best case scenario, either they put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, or they will at some point in their life. Right? And frankly, how quick you are to forgive is going to facilitate that process or not. Right? They either put their faith and trust in Jesus at some point in their life, or they will at some point in their life. And if that's the case... Everything that they've ever done was paid for in full by Jesus on the cross. All of God's wrath against sin was paid for. And when they put their faith in Jesus, it's applied to them. There's nothing more that I can do to satisfy God's perfect justice. Jesus paid it all, just like he did for you. So that's scenario number one. Or scenario number two, and this is truly something you don't wish on them, they don't put their faith and trust in Jesus. And then, for all of eternity, they will be paying the price. And there's nothing more that you can do to add to God's perfect justice in that scenario either. You can't top infinity. They're not getting off scot-free. God's perfect justice will be satisfied. So either way, your bitterness is doing nothing but hurting you. Your unforgiveness shows what you believe about the gospel. I, I think that's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, shouldn't, you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you forgive, if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. If I, if I don't believe that God will ultimately deal with sin, either through the blood of Jesus or in eternity, what gospel am I believing? And if I'm not believing the gospel, then my sin hasn't been covered. And this is what my Heavenly Father will do to me. But when I firmly place my faith in what Jesus has done on the cross to satisfy the holiness and the perfect justice of God, then I have to admit that this freedom and forgiveness is available to the person who wronged me. And when I can get to that point, then... I can forgive the inexcusable. Right? Christians forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. I was listening this week to Lisa Turker's talk. She wrote the book, um, Forgiving What You Can't Forget. She's the director of Proverbs 31 Ministries. She has a podcast called Therapy and Theology. Um, and she was relaying the story of how she got to this point of forgiving this person who wounded her so deeply. And she told of the time when she was in her counselor's office, just unraveled, just a mess. 
And, and she, he encouraged her, write down every offense that this person committed against you, right? And she began to just fill the floor, one offense after another. And first of all, just writing it all down was helpful. But then to choose to go back to each one and go, and I forgive him for this, and I forgive him for this, and I forgive him for this. And as easy as that sounds, obviously it's incredibly difficult and so her counselor gave her this, a bunch of pieces of red felt to lay over each one of them that seemed too hard to release. And it was to symbolize the blood of Jesus that was shed to pay for that specific sin. And so as she would lay that red felt on the card, she would say, I forgive him for this, and whatever my feelings will not yet allow for, the blood of Jesus will cover. Right? I forgive him. For this, and whatever my feelings will not yet allow for, the blood of Jesus will cover. I forgive him for this, and whatever my feelings will not yet allow for, the blood of Jesus will cover. I, I forgive him for this, and, and whatever my feelings will not yet allow for, the blood of Jesus will cover. And she began to walk in forgiveness over each of these things. And this is the process, to be able to revisit this, and over time, the volume of these things gets softer and softer. It's not that they ever go away. It's not that the thing never happened. It's not that history is completely erased. But there's transforming power in the free offer of forgiveness, the freeing offer of forgiveness. So the first step to freedom and release from the cage of bitterness is to believe the gospel. But once I've understood what forgiveness is not and why I should forgive, what does it look like? I want to give you seven things, okay? Seven things that forgiveness looks like, and then we'll transition to communion. Here's what forgiveness looks like. Number one, you've got to acknowledge the reality of the hurt or the harm. Okay? Otherwise, there's nothing to forgive. You've got to admit that it was wrong. Okay? Acknowledge the fact of it, and frankly, acknowledge the impact. The fact and the impact sometimes are different, sometimes are the same. But you're not doing anyone a courtesy by pretending nothing happened. You think that you don't want to cause waves or be rude. But what winds up happening is then you internalize all that pain and you react to everybody else as a result. You're doing no one a harm by pretending nothing happened. So acknowledge the heart, the, the wrong. Number two, remember what Jesus did on your behalf so that you could be forgiven. This is the only way we can forgive. Christians forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. I think the flip side of this, number three, is to recognize what Jesus did on the offender's behalf so that they could be forgiven too. This is the scandal of the gospel, guys, is that the, the same great forgiveness and love and grace that we love to sing about every Sunday morning that we've received that grace has been extended and offered to the person who caused you great harm. So once you can get to that point of admitting what happened and remembering the gospel, this is where you go next, is you grieve the loss. Before you start moving forward in anything, I just need to tell you, the data is out there. Grieving is healthy for you. In fact, I've heard it said this way, that grief is the pain that heals all other pains. 
Grieving is good for you. It's a, it's a function of your spirit that God designed. But waiting years to grieve is what psychologists call delayed bereavement. Okay? And delayed bereavement just means your brain's processing function shuts down until you deal with the loss that happened. So you lose, it messes up your creativity, your focus, your energy, your mood, and grieving helps us actually access all those things again. In other words, when we grieve, we're finally able to experience the beauty and wonder of life again that was stolen from us. It's saying goodbye to the bitterness that kept me holding on to all those painful memories and feeling the loss. Rather than living in denial and anger, I'm just going gonna, gonna to choose to say, that really hurt, but it does not have a place today. It happened, and I'm going to grieve that it happened. Once you grieve the loss, then you can release justice into God's hands. Like I choose not to hold the sin against them anymore, but instead release them from personal retribution through the perfect justice of God. In other words, I'm not going to make them pay because I trust that God already is taking care of that, either in this scenario or in this scenario. It needs to be not only just a conscious effort, but a continual effort. Okay? It's okay if you keep finding yourself right at the threshold of forgiveness again. Oh, I'm feeling it all over again. It's a conscious effort, but it's a continual effort. And then number six, commit to the process for as long as healing takes. I recognize that I'm making a choice to forgive, but I'm also choosing to forgive every time I notice the root of bitterness coming back up. Right? This is a foothold that the devil wants to put in your life to prey on the thing that hurts you the most. He's the one using that for your harm. Bitterness is a foothold to let the enemy in and have control over certain things. So I'm going to commit to the process for as long as healing takes. I'm going to walk in freedom by choosing forgiveness again and again and again, 70 times 7. And then finally, and this is where it gets hard. We thought it was hard up until this point. This is the kicker. Seek to bless that person. Work for their good. Even if it's in a small way, a distanced way that you need to maintain to keep safe. Like, I get that. And so maybe it just starts with praying for that person. Maybe it, from a distance it starts by sending a, a letter to that person saying a true statement. I wish God's best for you. All right? You might have the proximity and the safety to be able to do more and if the spirit leads you do that but seek to bless the person here's the deal in the new testament if you read through the new testament the vast majority of the way that the word forgiveness is talked about is two ways there's two main words that the new testament written in the language of greek right it, it's translated into english as forgiveness but there's two different sources of that word number one is afayemi and afayemi is a Greek word that doesn't just mean to forgive, but it also means to kind of to release, okay, to let go of, and to trust into the justice of something else. So it's like a legal court term. Like I'm, I'm going to release them to the, the ruling of the court. So afiemi is to release or to let go or to trust into the justice of something else. 
But the other word that the New Testament uses a lot of times is charizomai. The root word of that is charis, which is the word grace. To give, be in the process of giving grace to somebody. Forgiveness doesn't just mean I'm going to trust the pain and I'm going to grieve it and I'm going to trust it to the justice of God. It also means I'm going to then walk in the process of blessing the other person, to working for their good, to giving grace to them. I mean, check out what, what Ephesians chapter five, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of behavior. Okay, so I got rid of it. There's a big hole now. What do I fill that hole with? Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And how do we forgive? Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Did God just stop at forgiving your sin? Or has he gone beyond that? That's what we're supposed to do. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you're his dear children. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, pleasing our own to God. Unforgiveness is unhealthy, but if you want to be a person who lives with emotionally healthy and with emotion, emotional health and spiritual maturity, I want to encourage you to approach the Lord and ask him to teach you how to forgive. And maybe for you, you've never re- received this kind of forgiveness, that God would take all of your sin on himself punish his son in your place so that you could be forgiven. Today is a really good opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. What does that mean? That, that he died on the cross to take the punishment for your sins so you could be forgiven. And he rose again to new life so that you could be given new life. And if you put your faith in Jesus today, you too will be forgiven, not only from everything that's ever happened, but everything that will, that you ever will do. And you'll have a place in eternity in heaven with God. You can be forgiven today, everything that you've ever done. In fact, I want to encourage all of us to just take a moment in, in just a second to ask the Lord to teach us how to forgive. We're going to be taking communion here as a church family. And maybe there's somebody or some situation that the Lord has been bringing to your mind. And I want to encourage you to let his sanctifying word shine some light on the painful parts of your heart. Things you've been holding on to so tightly. And I want to encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to come in and soothe you and to empower you this morning. And as you heal, you'll be able to tell the story of your scars. Not your wounds. Your wounds are open and they're undealt with and they're not finished yet. And what do you do with wounds? You don't expose them. You, you cover them until they're healed, until they've turned into a scar. But the scars in your life, those tell a story of the grace of God. And so as you heal, your story becomes a testimony. In fact, as we end this series on emotionally healthy spirituality, as we transition to communion, I just want to share a testimony with you of somebody who healed from a great wound through the power of forgiveness, transforming grace of forgiveness. It's a poem that Lisa Turkers wrote. I just want to share this with you. She says, um, what does healing look like? Looks like tears, facing fears, crawling back in bed, covers over my head, 
Looks like time, admitting I'm not fine, not yet, and no clue when, wanting to give up, but not giving up. It looks like a fight, staring up at midnight, a cold bed, jumbled thoughts, emotions both numb and wild, deciding to live, refusing to give over to defeat. It's not a checklist or a clenched fist or an attempt to barely exist. No, healing is living. It's rebellious acts of resilience. It's chasing the sun, rediscovering fun. It's climbing back up, maybe clawing my way up and through and out. Refusing to entertain defeat and doubt. It's working through what I'm walking through. It's counseling and pondering. It's being okay with quiet and then dancing it out loudly, lifting my head proudly, kneeling to God humbly and finally knowing I'll be okay, better than okay. Maybe my best ever. Definitely my best ever. Bitterness is contagious. So is healing. And it's a healing that's only made possible by what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross and he rose again three days later, that very act that we celebrate in communion. So I'd ask the ushers uh, to grab a few more communion packets. If you didn't get one as you come in this morning, um, they've got some, just gesture to them as they come down the aisle and they'll get one into your hands. But we're going to close this morning by celebrating communion together, the very act that made it possible for us to be forgiven. And it could be that you need to calm your heart and prepare your mind today for celebrating communion. Um, I think scripture is pretty clear on this, that... Um, This is a powerful symbol. It points to a life-changing reality, one that we don't take lightly or indulge in flippantly or selfishly, right? We pause because there's gravity to this moment of remembering the gospel. Thank you, men. I appreciate that. Just pause and pray for a moment. Lord, are there pockets of bitterness or anger or selfishness or greed or pride that we need to pay attention to? Have we built up walls between ourselves or someone else through our sin? Have we grieved your Holy Spirit in any way, God? Could you point those out right now? We're going to pause and invite you to show us. We're willing to confess. We're willing to repent. God, please convict us this morning and lead us in your path of healing and wholeness and righteousness. Please do business with us this morning. And as you do, work healing in us for the testimony of your goodness and glory. Let's spend a moment talking to the Lord. If you would, let's remove that top seal. So there's two seals, if you notice. There's a top one that has the bread and the wafer in it. 
Um, and as we eat the bread, we're going to remember the body that was broken to pay the price for our sin. Um, oh, there you are, George. That's one of our elders, George Grams, who just, just pray a blessing over this time in the work and the in communion. Father God, uh, we're just so grateful um, for you leaving heaven and coming here and giving your body. Uh, Lord, what a gift that is. And as we're caught up in the busyness of Christmas and shopping and all that good stuff, Lord, we have to go back to the, the base that um, it's because of you, that um, the gift that you gave, which is far greater than anything that we could ever imagine, Lord, because of that, we can have eternal life with you. And um, thank you for coming here and giving your body as a gift and help us to um, just take that and mm -hmm. offer um, in forgiveness of others that, for what you have done for us. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you, George. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now grab hold of the bottom of the cup. Pro tip, if you're wearing white or something cream, point this away from you. And open it up. As we drink the fruit of the vine, we're going to remember the lifeblood that was willingly shed on our behalf. I've asked Lynn Groff. Where are you at, Lynn? Myron. Yeah, we'll do Myron. Myron, another one of our elders, to pray over this. Lord, uh, <clears throat> we stop and we thank you for leaving the splendor of heaven, Lord, to come down here. Wow, Lord, what a sign of forgiveness that you gave us, Lord. And we know that uh, mm. without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, Lord, thank you for that. You were the perfect lamb. You were the perfect sacrifice, Lord. And you did something that we were not able to do ourselves. Mm. So, Lord, as we uh, partake of this element, represents your shed blood. Lord, we are a very grateful and worshipful people. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Apostle Paul continues, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. We'll be having some greeting team, uh, guest services, members at the doors, as you exit to help uh, take any of these. Um, also, if you'd like to contribute to the Benevolent Fund, they'll have a plate for that as well. The Benevolent Fund enables us to assist the church families in need. It also funds the Community Needs Program, which meets the third Tuesday of every month here at night. And every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until He comes again. And when that happened... 
they sang a hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives.